Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. This week on The Breakdown, she's known as a super lawyer in California's political circles. Robin Joan Hansen has made legal arguments on behalf of governors, lawmakers, supporters, and opponents of some of the hottest ballot measures in state history. That's right. And her firm recently merged with another legal juggernaut in the world of politics. We'll be talking with her in just a few minutes. But first, after what seems like years of campaigning, actually it has been years of campaigning, <laughs> uh, actual votes will be cast on Monday in the Iowa presidential caucuses. And join Joining us now for an on-the-ground look at that event is Kate Payne. She's a reporter with Iowa Public Radio, and she joins us, as you can hear in the background there, from a campaign event for Joe Biden. And Kate, are you in Ottumwa, Iowa? Is that where you are? That's right. I am in an American Legion Hall in Ottumwa, and we're expecting former Vice President Joe Biden to speak in just a couple minutes. You know, I'm curious, like, he's been sort of criticized for not attracting many people. How many folks are there? So I was just in the other room where the event will happen, and it's a few dozen people. Uh, Campaigns are are always sort of trying to game the system as far as getting the right room to fit the number of people that they're expecting to come. You always want and the phone booth wasn't available. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) but there there are a few dozen people in there. Yeah. And this must be like the 850th event you've been to. Um, Can you just talk about the energy level more broadly in Iowa at this campaign event and others? Like, what does it feel like now that we're just a few days away from these long-awaited caucuses? So... As, as you said, it's been months working on a year, a couple years for some of these candidates campaigning here. Uh, it's just been a blur, especially in these past uh, couple weeks leading up into caucus night. I mean, it's just back to back to back events. Uh, certainly for the candidates that are not the U.S. senators in the race uh, who don't have to be in D.C., they're really trying to pack in these events uh, because those four U.S. senators are cooped up um, in Washington. Uh, but on the weekends, we're seeing those uh, senators as well, trying to fit in as many events as they possibly can. Describe how these caucuses work, because it's something of a black box for those of us that don't live in in Iowa. How how does it work? What's it going to look like Monday night? Sure. So the Republican and Democratic caucuses are a little different. We'll focus on the Democrats uh, because that's that's the big question here. Uh, But in the Iowa Democratic caucuses, there's no voting booths. There's no ballots. You have people physically going to places in church basements, in cafeterias, gymnasiums, and they're physically showing support for their candidate by standing in a particular part of the room. You know, Biden over here, Buttigieg over there. Uh, And then it's over a course 
course of maybe a couple hours, folks debate it out. They try to win over other supporters to their group in order to get enough supporters in the room to win delegates to go on to the county convention, state national convention. So, I mean, this is a really unique process compared to most of the rest of the country. Um, And, you know, we've heard a lot of criticism this year from people that Iowa shouldn't be the first state, that it's not representative. I'm just curious, like, how voters there have responded to that, um, including from a former presidential candidate and now Warren surrogate, Julian Castro. Sure. So we should say that every four years, there's scrutiny on Iowa. There are questions about, you know, should this state be first? Is, is this the right way to pick presidents? But certainly it does seem like this year, those questions, those criticisms are reaching a higher level. Uh, even folks on the ground, Iowa Democrats at different levels of local leadership, uh, are raising those same questions. I'm hearing more and more from uh, certain Iowa Democrats that they would rather the state move to a primary, that there are systemic issues with the caucus system that are limiting access. You know, some people have to work. Some people uh, have little kids and, and aren't sure how to swing child care for a couple hours on a weekday night. Do you have a sense of those limitations on certain kinds of folks who can't get there? Who is that going to benefit and who is that going to hurt? Well, historically, when we look at turnout for the Iowa caucuses, it does skew whiter, older, more wealthy, more educated. Uh, So as you could expect, I mean, anybody who uh, can't scrap together a couple extra hours, it's going to be harder on them to get out. Um, And then as we look at the state overall, uh, Iowa is an overwhelmingly white state. So even if everyone were turning out, some folks in the country still have questions of if Iowa is the best place to kick off this process. All right, we're going to have to let you go in a minute, but I'm curious, like, as a reporter, how do you decide where to be on Monday night? There's, I think, 1,700 caucuses across the state. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's right. So I decided to stick with uh, a caucus site that was actually the largest site in the state in 2016. Uh, they got, I believe it was 935 people packed into an auditorium that's built for about 750. Uh, and this year they're expecting even more people. So just imagine, uh, you know, trained volunteers trying to count a thousand people who just want to you know, express their preference for their candidate. Uh, it's it's going to be an interesting time. Sounds and, wild. <laughs> and aren't they using an app this year as well? Yes. So uh, the Democrats and the Republicans will be using an app. Uh, They did in 2016 as well. Uh, But particularly in the wake of 2016, uh, with Russian interference that relied on cyber attacks, there are a lot of questions about uh, potential vulnerabilities with this app. Uh, So precinct leaders will be sending in the results. Uh, They can send in the results through the app. They'll be able to call in as well if if they'd prefer that or if there are any issues. Uh, But there are a lot of questions of if this is the most secure way to send in those results as the world watches on Monday yeah. night. All right. Well, Kate Payne, thank you so much. Before we let you go, we should mention that you co-host a podcast all about the Iowa caucuses. It's called Caucus Land. Make sure to check that out and you can binge over the weekend. Kate, thanks so much. Thanks, Kate. Thank you. All right. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to be joined by political super lawyer Robin Johansson. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio.
Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hi there, I'm Randad Fattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. And welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer here with Marisa Lagos. And our guest today is not a household name, and she might just like it that way, but her fingerprints are all over some of the hottest political battles in California. Attorney Robin Johansson, welcome to Political Breakdown. Thank you, Scott. It's great to be here. Do you like that anonymity a little bit? <laughs> I do. You don't want yeah. to be in the news, no, probably. No, but I that's bet you, not my job. But when you walk around Sacramento, people recognize you, right? Yes and no. You know, with term limits and... Um, Frankly, just my practice changes, so sometimes I'm not up there as much as Mm -hmm. other times. So yes and no. Well, let's talk about how you sort of got into politics. And it goes back in some ways to the impeachment of Richard Nixon, the the hearings that were going on in 1974. You were a staffer on that uh, committee. Uh, Tell us, you know, how did you end up there? Well, I ended up there because I had worked with Peter Rodino, who was from New Jersey, and I was in New Jersey at the time. He was, like, chairing the House Judiciary Committee? Correct. Wonderful man. And um, they were looking for staff. I was not a lawyer. And they were looking for people to basically be research assistants for the impeachment inquiry. How old were you? Uh, 24, 25, something like that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And you had worked on uh, the McGovern campaign before this, but did you, I mean, did you think you were going to be going into politics? Did you see yourself going to D.C. at that age? No. Um, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I had taught high school for four years before that. And it was pretty clear to me that I should be doing something else. (laughs) I mean, I, I, I couldn't do it well enough to make myself happy at it. I loved the kids, um, but it wasn't for me. So then the question was, what next? The McGovern campaign came up, and and then this. And it was through the impeachment inquiry where I saw these e- extraordinary lawyers that it became clear to me that's what I wanted Did to do. Did you happen to run across either Hillary Rodham Clinton or Zoe Lofgren, who was also a staffer and is now a House impeachment manager? Yes, Hillary, for sure, Um, because we were all, you know, it was a very, very insular group that we had. There were about 100 of us on the staff, and, you know, we couldn't talk to anybody. Uh, I couldn't talk to my husband. Like being on a jury. (laughs) It was for, you know, six months. Um, So, yes, Hillary, definitely. Um, I did not meet Zoe Lofgren at the time, 
But she later became a client of our firm and uh, worked with her when she was on the Board of Supervisors in Santa Clara County. So watching this impeachment unfold and having worked as, you know, before you were a lawyer on that one, what are your impressions about sort of how we as a nation are looking at things differently or similarly and, and just the process? It's very disappointing. Um, what I saw at the Nixon impeachment were <clears throat> really members from both sides of the aisle struggling um, to do the right thing and struggling to find out what the facts were. And of course, there had been the whole Watergate, Senate Watergate committee process, so there was a lot of evidence. Um, here we have a lot of evidence, but you know, it's it's not being produced. <laughs> so I, it's it was a very different time in Congress, I think. So you, uh, after that experience, you decided you wanted to be a lawyer. Was that just like, <laughs> was that like something you just knew immediately? Or, you know, was it sort of like, well, I don't want to be a school teacher anymore, so what am I going to do? <laughs> well, there was that. It, it was not a, you know, a quick uh, moment of, of uh, a flashpoint where I knew what I wanted to do. Uh, no, after being in political campaigns, the McGovern campaign and then a couple in New Jersey, I thought I needed a credential because I thought I wanted to run campaigns, and women in those days didn't run campaigns. So I thought, oh, I'll go to law school, and then I'll run campaigns. Um, then I went to the impeachment, and I saw what real lawyers do and what you know, fascinating work there could be if you could do that kind of work, which was, of course, a big if um, in those days. It still is. You know, A lot of people ask me, how do you get into political law? And I said, it's a kind of happenstance. It's not easy. Well, um, you, what happened? Yeah. Tell well, us. what happened? Well, um, partly because of the, the people that I knew from the impeachment, um, a lot because of one of my law school professors. Um, I, you know, I said, I don't want to go into corporate law. I just, it's not me. And he suggested that I apply to, <clears throat> if actually he convinced this small law firm called Rosen, Remcho and Henderson, Felton Henderson, who became mm -hmm. a distinguished uh, federal judge, um, that they needed an associate, which they really didn't <laughs> at the time. <laughs> but Tony convinced them that they did. So were the there any, Sorry, were there any other women at the firm? Uh, no. Okay. No. So the so the Remcho in that, of course, was Joe Remcho, right. um, and I believe you joined up with him in '83. Was that right? Or you formed no. the firm? You we created formed the, the firm. firm. Yeah. Yes. Tell us about Joe Remcho because no. again, he was not really uh, a well-known name outside political circles, but really legendary. Yes, legendary, loved by all. I think um, he was a wonderful man, um, and and he and I. Worked together for 25 years uh, in a, a very close partnership. Um, Tell us about him. What was he like? Oh, he he was buoyant. He, he um, was fierce in his um, in his advocacy. He was probably the best lawyer I've ever known. He was uh, great fun to work with, and and that's why so many people in Sacramento just you know trusted and loved him. So how so you went to work for the different firm and then you guys decided to create your own firm in 83. What why do that and was the work different that you guys decided to take on? No, it was not really. Um basically what happened was Felton Henderson went on the federal bench um and and Joe and I and um our other partner Kathleen Purcell decided that we should start our own firm. 
And so that's what we did in 83. So when you are at a dinner party or in an elevator or whatever, and somebody says, what do you do? Like, how do you describe it? I try to describe it as election law, constitutional law, and governance, uh, government, you know, governance issues involving government. And that's why our constitution, particularly our state constitution, is such an integral part of our practice. But also, you know, the statutes, that kind of thing. And your clients, fair to say, all Democrats? Not all. And certainly when we're working at the municipal level, we don't know. Mm-hmm. It's nonpartisan. It's nonpartisan. That's right. What One of your very first clients, I think, was Willie Brown or one of the early ones. Now, tell, tell what's it like to have Willie Brown as a client? He is sharp as a tack. Uh, and um, he and Joe were, you know, great fun to work with because they both have this, I don't know, love of life, I guess. I don't know, love of the law, love of joie government. De yeah, joie de vivre. Um, <laughs> and, and so – it was um, he was a demanding client, very um, you know he and a lawyer himself. You, and a yeah, lawyer himself. I'm curious because you know Willie Brown has a t- has a reputation for walking right up to lines, legal and otherwise. Sometimes <laughs> was it ever difficult, like reining him in, or did you ever have to talk him out? I mean, obviously you can't do that. Respecting <laughs> attorney-client privilege, but just on a personal level, um, he seems hard to say no to. Well, a lot of our clients are hard to say no to. And, and you know, it's very often the case where you, you have to say to a client, um, look, you can't do it that way. Um, you might be able to do this. And here are the problems with doing this or that. So that's, that's what we try to do. We try to help people figure out what it is that, you know, their goal and then say, OK, you know. Here's how you stay out of jail. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly. So, uh, talking about being a political lawyer, I imagine sometimes that might um, entail drafting initiative statutes or things like that. Sometimes it might be taking people to court. Uh, what is? I mean, how would you describe it? What the bulk of your day entails? It's pretty scholarly in the, I hope, <laughs> usually. Uh, I spend a lot of time reading and writing um, briefs and working with uh, the law. But I also spend a lot of time, you know, meeting with clients. For example, we, we do a lot of work on the California Voting Rights Act. So that requires a lot of jurisdictions to move from at-large elections to district elections. That means that we are going to evening meetings, you know, of these cities or special districts or whatever while they try to figure out how to do this. And so it's advising them on whether they should do it and, if so, how, to, how they should do it. If you're just joining us, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos here with Scott Schaefer, and we are talking with political super attorney Robin Johansson. She is a legend up in Sacramento and around the state. Um, for And some of the battles you have fought have been a little more high profile. Like, let's talk term limits. That was a fun one, right? Oh, boy. <laughs> yes. Tell us the genesis of that case. Well, the genesis, of course, was uh, Prop, what was it? One oh No, not 103. It's okay. You don't okay. have to remember 92. the number. 92. <laughs> yeah. And a lot of people feel that Willie Brown was sort of the impetus for that, right? The, the Ayatollah of the Assembly? Well, I think he was the target. The target, uh, yeah. And, and David Roberti as well. Who was um, in the Senate. Who was the Senate pro tem. And um, there were some really ugly ads um, about the two of them. Racially tinged as Yes, well. uh, yes, racially, ethnically. So this was to limit how long lawmakers could serve in Sacramento, and it right. sought to be retroactive, right? 
Well, uh, it, it, it yes and no, it, and I'm having trouble remembering that one because there have been several <laughs> in between. Um, but um, what it meant was that um, Speaker Brown and President Pro Tem Roberti couldn't stay in office that much longer. I can't remember whether it I, I think they are, I yeah. think they got another four years. But well, because sure. he ran for mayor in '95, and he, right. was, he was termed out at that point. Yes, yes. Um, so, you know, we we sued and went to uh, federal court. Uh, first, we went to the California Supreme Court, and they upheld it. And we then went to federal court, and we won in the district court, and then it went up to the Ninth Circuit. And we won with that panel. And then they went what's called en banc, and they— Which is the whole circuit. The, well, at that point, I think it was 11, but I'm not sure. Um, and and they, you know, upheld term limits ultimately. From a lawyer's perspective, from a politician's perspective, it's easy to understand why they don't like term limits, you know. Uh, but from your perspective, uh, you know, from the public's perspective, I guess I should say, like, why is it, why is it bad for the public? It's bad for the public because you lose so much institutional memory. Um, it's, it takes often years to learn a, uh, an issue in California. California is huge. And to figure out all of the unintended consequences. Um, so you, I'm not saying it's – the counter argument is, of course, that it, it allows too much power in one person. Mm-hmm. Incumbents are hard to, to boot out of office. It's better now. Because we've changed the law and people can stay in one house for a longer time, and that's fine. Uh, but it has some real downsides. Would you say that to some extent your firm benefited from term limits in the sense that you are the institutional knowledge? And, you know, we've heard a lot of talk, and it's not its not just lawyers. There's consultants, lobbyists, even journalists that sometimes know more these days than lawmakers about the history and things like that. Yes, that the real institutional knowledge is in the staff at the Capitol. And, you know, to the degree that, that they carry that knowledge with them, that's great. Um, to the degree that they come with a particular point of view and then are able to basically push that point of view, it's not so great. I believe uh, Willie Brown hired your firm around the 1991 redistricting. Was that right? Or was it even before that? Much before that. Yeah. Okay. So, but redistricting is obviously back then. That was done by the legislature. Uh, it's not done that way anymore. And I believe your firm represented perhaps the Democratic Party in, op- in opposing uh, the redistricting commission, which voters approved. Is that one a tougher one to defend from a public point of view, because you know a lot of people feel now, including Barack Obama and Eric Holder, that really that's the way to do it. You got to take the politics out of the line drawing; uh, otherwise, you're just having politicians protect their own jobs. And as with term limits, you know, it's it's got its good sides and its bad sides. And I thought that that the commission um, the first time around did a good job. Um, it's not easy. And if you want to see you know a train wreck, you can look at what happened in Arizona with their commissions. Because um, they they had commissions before California did, so again, what you've got are um, you know it, it a lot of it has to do with how well you choose the members of the commission and then how well they get along. Um, the only part that the legislature gets to play in the process is a pretty critical one, and that is that the leadership in the legislature get to strike uh, certain members from the pool, and so that's a, that's an important. Um, 
aspect of the law, and I'm glad it's there. The Another big issue that I know you've worked on that I think we have constant debates in California about is the initiative process and whether it should be narrowed or changed. Um, I know you were on a commission that recommended a lot of changes to it um, some 20 years ago, but we have seen some changes in recent years around this idea that the legislature gets to hold hearings and that um, proponents have longer to decide whether to change language or pull it off. What are your thoughts on those changes? Are they working? Well, the legislature has long had the ability to hold hearings, and of course, they, really <laughs> they can always hold hearings. They can always <laughs> hold hearings, um, and and that's helpful. Um, the The ability to amend is, I think, a big help um, because one of the loneliest things um, is trying to write legislation without the ability to get a sense of of how it's going to work. And and really, when when we're involved in something, we try to pull in as many people as we possibly can. But you can't always, you know, you throw something out there and, you know, somebody sends a comment in now that they they can do that um, and says, you know, you didn't think about this. And we say, whoa, (laughs) we should have. How much work goes into writing uh, a a ballot measure, you know, before it actually gets submitted for approval? Oh, dear me. Uh, it depends on who's writing it and and who the clients are. Um, but we regularly go through forty or fifty versions, drafts, whatever wow. you want to call it, um, and maybe more. And, when, and are you looking both at what could pass muster with the voters and also what's legal and you know yeah, what's unintended the consequences, there? all that. And stuff. Are you, all of those things. And are you yes. having to give bad news sometimes to your clients about what they want? Well, of course, because you say, well, federal law says you can't do that, you know, <laughs> then so, okay, what do we do now? Although it would be more business for you down the road uh, in the past. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> you don't like to defend something that you know isn't going to work. So, you may not, not everybody feels that way, I guess But back to the, the changes that were made, I mean, one thing that we've seen is that groups have used the longer runway to leverage what they want to see the legislature do. And I think you could argue on both sides of that one, whether that's a good or bad thing. But I'm, I'm curious if that, do you think, has changed the dynamics, whether it be, you know, in the Capitol or more broadly in terms of what voters are actually seeing come before them? Well, I think what, again, I think the deliberative process helps. And so having the legislature get involved and, and look at something, I mean, obviously, if you can get it passed and signed by the governor, it is a lot faster. It's a lot cheaper. Um, it, you can go back and change it. You can go back and change it. There are just so many things that really are preferable about that. Now, whether it's going to happen and whether it's going to happen the way your client wants it to happen, of course, is the big question. Well, and a few years ago, there was uh, maybe, yeah, I guess it was two years ago, there was the uh, ballot measure that the soda industry had put on the ballot to kind of use as a bargaining chip, and it would have limited the ability of local governments to raise taxes. That sent panic uh, throughout a lot of quarters, and it forced the legislature to come up with a deal with the proponents of that ballot measure that basically made sure there would be no soda taxes for many years to come. Uh, and some people saw that as like, I don't know, bullying? extortion, yeah. bullying, <laughs> like what, pick your word. Like, what did you make of that? Well, uh, I think that when the legislature comes up with the deal, if the people don't like it, 
they can submit another initiative and change it. Or push their lawmakers. Or push their lawmakers, yes. So, you know, I I really think this is all part of the lawmaking process. The messy democratic process. It's very messy. I want to ask you, we we touched at the beginning on the fact that you were the only uh, female when you came into the uh, firm with Joe Remco, and and he died tragically in a helicopter accident. And I think there were questions in Sacramento about whether the practice would go on. Um, Obviously, you are... Still going strong. Um, that must have been a really hard thing. But I just wonder, like, you had already been there for 20 years. Have you found over the years that things have changed as a woman? Or is it still? <laughs> it's all by the look <laughs> on your yeah. face. The answer is no. <laughs> well, actually, yes, things have changed um, in the sense that, uh, you know, when we first started, there were very few women in the legislature, very few women in elected office. And, and so as a woman... In the law, there weren't that many of us either. So I was often in a room, you know, the only woman with with all men. Um, That's better, I think. I think it's better for everybody. Um, But in terms of what happened after Joe died, you know, we as a group were able to really uh, pull together. And, And, you know, part of the things I think that Joe and I were most proud of were, you know, that we had managed to attract really fine people to work with us. And and we all came together uh, in great sorrow, but we said, we're going to make this work. Really quickly, we're in a big election year. Uh, what are you thinking about in 2020 oh, as a person and as a lawyer who works in this world? I am very worried about where we are as a country. Uh, as a Democrat, I'm worried about where the party is. Um, what do you mean by that? Well, I, I think that our party uh, has one very unifying force, which is to win the, the presidential election and as many of the uh, congress- congressional seats as we can. Um, but we've got to unify before, you know, on a, behind a candidate, and and we're going to have to have a candidate that everyone will agree on and come out to vote for. All right. Well, Robin Johansson, thank you so much for coming in and talking with us on The Breakdown. Thank you. And that's it for this edition of Political Breakdown. It's a production of KQED Public Radio. Our producer is Guy Marzarati. Our engineers are Katie McMurrin and Seal Muller. KQED's team includes Holly Kernan, Ethan Lindsay, Vinnie Tong, and Jonathan Blakely. I'm Maurice Lagos. You can find me on Twitter. I am at M. Lagos. And I'm Scott Schaefer. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Scott Schaefer. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time, everybody. After the caucuses. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, it was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know 
that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members. It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.